So I locked myself out. Funny story. Uh, I was sopping wet after the baptism, and I, I locked myself out of my office, um, and my car keys were inside. Anyway, it was just a bad deal. So, so, so I did what any red-blooded American pastor would do. I said, Ken, what do we do, Ken? And Ken Foster broke into my office. So thank God for... That's how the body of Christ works. Like, I can't even get into my own office uh, by myself, you know, and, and yet the body of Christ, we, we help each other out. And so we're going to be in Romans 11 today. Romans 11. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I keep saying as we walk through Romans, I keep saying, well, this week we're in a really tough passage. But again, I mean, Romans 11, this is tough, all right? And so let's just ask God for his help. God, uh, we don't know how to pray as we should. We're weak. Um, I don't even know how to get in and out of my office without help, God. We are, your works and your ways and your word is far too marvelous for us. God, just give us hearts that want to be hungry, hearts that, that want to understand, hearts that desire to know and love and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So one of my favorite Old Testament people is the prophet Elijah. And one of my favorite Old Testament stories is a story of, um, of Elijah and his showdown with the prophets of Baal. If you remember, um, what had happened was there, there were, there, Elijah had prayed. There was no rain for three and a half years. Um, the people have, have wandered far from God. The people have become sinful. They're acting just like everybody else. And many of the people have started following this false god, little g god, named Baal. And, uh, and so there's a showdown that, that between Elijah standing alone, standing for God, standing for the truth. And then there's these 450 false prophets that follow and worship a false god named Baal. And, and so the showdown is we're, we're both going to have an offering, we're both going to build our altars, and we're going to see which one the Lord sends fire down and, and, and consumes. And so the 450 prophets of Baal, I mean, there's a lot more of them. They have much more faith all put together than one little old uh, Elijah has by himself, but all the faith in the world placed in the wrong person uh, is, is nothing compared to just a mustard seed of faith put in the right person, okay? And so they cry, and I love Elijah because he gets a little sarcastic, and he starts saying, hey, maybe your God's busy, maybe he's asleep, maybe he's eating dinner, maybe he's in the bathroom, maybe you should scream louder, and they start cutting themselves and spilling blood, and nothing happens, and then Elijah cries out to God, and God sends fire down and, and consumes his offering, and then he goes and he prays, and he prays, and he prays, and, and God sends rain on the land and restores and refreshes and replenishes the land, and in the meantime, you know, right after uh, that fire came down, all the people that were kind of on the fence, suddenly they become, you know, all about God, and, uh, and they join with Elijah, and they, they, they slaughter. They bring God's judgment against all of these false prophets, and then the rain comes. This is an amazing moment of vindication, and yet Elijah hears word that King Ahab has told his wife, Queen, Isabel, uh, uh, Queen Jezebel, excuse me, what he's done, and she's not happy. She's coming for him. Elijah he just kind of breaks, and he, and he, and he girds up his, his garments, and he runs, and he runs away. And he goes, and he sits under a tree, and he just asks God, take me from here. Take, just take my life. And he, and he goes to a cave, and he says, God, I'm the only person left. I'm the only person um, that cares about you. I'm the only person that hasn't bowed my knee to Baal. I'm the only person that wants to honor you. And, and uh, just kill me. You know, just, just be done with me. Elijah is definitely depressed, maybe suicidal. I mean, he's at the end of his rope. And God says something to him that's really interesting. He says to him, he says, Elijah, he says, I have 7,000 other men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, Elijah, in this moment when you think you're all by yourself and you think you're the only one that cares, you're not. 
okay? And so I just want to ask you to think about a time in your life when you have felt alone. Like, when have you felt alone? When's there been a time in your life when you felt like, I'm the only one in my family that's even trying? I'm the only one in my marriage that's trying. I'm the only person in my church that cares. I'm the only person at my, at my work that cares. Everybody around me is just goofing off, and I'm the only person working hard. I'm the only person, I'm the only person that's faithful. Or maybe it's, I'm the only person that cares for the poor. Or I'm the only person that cares for youth. I'm the only person that cares for kids. I'm the only person that cares for senior adults. I'm the only person that cares for the law. When we start to feel like I'm the only one who cares, what can easily creep in is feelings of hard-heartedness, self-righteousness, and it starts to get ugly. And that's what happened with Elijah. I mean, Moses, Moses had, had, had led the people, and Moses had cried out, man, these people are broken, they're, they, they're sinful, but God blot my name out of the book if you'll just save and rescue them. Well, Elijah kind of does the opposite of that. He says, he says man, these people, they, they trample your altars, they, they want to even kill me. He says, just do away with them. He's done. Sometimes we feel like that. God said something to Elijah that was very encouraging, and I believe that God's message to Elijah was relevant all those years ago. It was relevant here in Romans 11 when Paul repeats it, and it's relevant to us, 21st century Sweetwater America. God says, I have 7,000 others. You're not the only one who cares. You're not the only one that wants to be faithful to God. You're not the only one that's trying. And that's not, it's not a slam. That's not like saying, oh, get over yourself, Elijah. What God's telling Elijah and what he wants to tell us, I believe, is that you're not by yourself. You're not alone. You're not fighting the battle, but at least you don't have to fight by yourself. Paul opens Romans 11, this really tough passage, with a reference to the prophet Elijah. And I think part of why he does that is because Paul identifies with Elijah. Paul has, uh, he, he opened up Romans 9 saying, I just pour out my prayer and I just pour out my guts. I, I, my one heart's desire is that these people, my own flesh and blood, my own people, my own race would would follow Christ, but they've rejected Christ for the most part. He says, I wish I could take place, switch places with some of them, and I could be cursed, and they could be saved. He identifies with Elijah because Paul's prayed, he's preached, he's traveled all over the world, he's gone from city to city, and everywhere he goes, he preaches first to his own people, and they reject him. And they kick him out of the synagogue, and they beat him, and they imprison him. And they tell lies about him. And Paul had to feel at times like he was the only one that cared. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul describes a time in his ministry and in his life when he said, I felt like a ship that just had too much cargo on. I felt so weighted down. I felt so burdened. I felt so burdened down. I felt like, he said, it felt like the, the death sentence was in me. In other words, I wanted to die. He said, but all this happened so that I might learn to trust, not in myself, but in the God who raises the dead. The question Paul's going to pose in this chapter, Romans 11, is really the same question he's been answering all the way through the book of Romans, and that's, can God be counted on? Is God faithful? Specifically, has God rejected his Old Testament people? And if God's rejected his Old Testament people, does that mean God might one day reject me too? God's word to Elijah all those years ago, the word that then Paul speaks to us 2,000 years ago, and the word we hear today is this word, remnant. Paul uses this word, remnant, in Romans 11, and that's a reference to a small group of people saved by God's grace who are characterized by humility, characterized by hunger for God, who shine as lights 
and a crooked and a perverse generation. So, so when God told Elijah, I've got 7,000 others, I mean, there were way more Israelites than 7,000. Um, so it's not everybody, but it's more than just Elijah. God continues to save a remnant of his people today, uh, and, and that includes from the church. Everybody that says, hey, I want to be on board with God, everybody's not. Everybody that, 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 that would rather go to heaven than hell isn't necessarily a follower of Christ and isn't necessarily saved. You're not alone, but the number of faithful people is bigger than just you, but it's less than everybody. It's somewhere in between. It's more than you, and it's less than everybody, and the biblical word for that is remnant. God preserves by his grace a remnant people who will shine in the darkness. So verse 1, Paul says, I ask then, as God rejected his people, by no means. He keeps saying that. God hasn't washed his hands of his promises to Abraham. He has not washed his hands of his Old Testament people. How does he know that? He says, I myself am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abram. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul can trace his lineage all the way back to Abram. He can trace his lineage all the way back to Benjamin. That's the, and the tribe of Benjamin is where the first king, King Saul, came from. Paul's like one of these Americans that can trace himself all the way back to the Mayflower. You know, and you're like, okay, you're better than me. I get it. You can, you know, your ancestor came over on the Mayflower. And Paul's like, I can trace, I can trace my lineage all the way back to the first king of Israel. If anybody's a real Israelite, I am. He says, God hasn't rejected Israel. I am one. And God saved me. All the first apostles were, were, were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish, okay? So he said that God hasn't rejected his people. And so from Romans 11, there's a couple of, of uh, mistakes we can make some, for, for, for some sad periods of the church's history. People have read Romans 9 through 11 and walked away with anti-Semitism. Some have read these passages and walked away with the sense that God has rejected his people, and, and they've used that, uh, this, uh, this text and others to stir up hatred towards Jewish people and have uh, justified things like the Holocaust and anti-Semitism throughout the ages. Paul would be appalled at that. That's nowhere near what he's saying here. But others read these passages and walk away saying, God has the separate plan for the Jews. He's got one plan for the church. He's got this separate plan for the Jews. And basically, God's, you know, God's got, got them worked out. Uh, no need to really evangelize the Jews or share Christ with them. God's got them. They've got a special inside track. And we really can't arrive at either of those positions from the New Testament. We can't arrive at either of those positions from Romans 9 through 11. What Paul has presented all the way through Romans, what he keeps presenting in Romans 9 through 11, is that God's desire has always been to create one family. One family family out of the people of Abram and the Gentiles, and he brings this one family together mysteriously and beautifully, and what unites them, uh, uh, black and white, rich and poor, uh, male and female, slave and free, is Jew and Gentile, is faith in Jesus Christ. Um, and so there's not a separate plan for Jews, there's not a rejection of Jews. The, the plan that God uh, has always had has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is the fulfillment, he's where the law and the prophets always pointed. All right. And so in, in this, in this uh, chapter, he's using this idea of a remnant. Let's, let's pay attention to, to that. He says, verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? Here's where he brings in that example of Elijah. How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone have left. They seek to kill me too. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is 
by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. So this idea of remnant is really important in the Old Testament, especially like in the, in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 1.9 uh, says, unless there had been a remnant, unless God had spared some, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, unless, except for God's incredible act of grace, we would have just been wiped out as a people. Uh, by the time the first century rolls around, there's a lot of obsession with who, who is this remnant? Like, who are the real insiders? Who are the people that are really in with God? And there was a group, a really devout group, a really uh, sincere group, and they were called the Pharisees. And their word Pharisee means set apart ones. And they said, you know what? We know what the problem is. The problem is sin. And we know the solution. The solution is we got to keep all the rules. And if we keep all the rules, that's going to set us apart, and we're going to be that remnant that was prophesied. The thing is, the Pharisees diagnosed the problem correctly. The problem really was sin. But they, they misdiagnosed the cure. The cure wasn't to pursue a righteousness of their own, but the cure was, as Paul writes here, to pursue a righteousness by faith in another, by faith in Christ. The basis for the remnant, Paul says, is grace. There's a remnant chosen by grace. God's not abandoned his promises to Abram. He's fulfilled them by, bringing, by creating a family of Jew and Gentile who are united in faith in Christ. Um, so again, Paul gives personal re- evidence. Paul's not, uh, God's not abandoning his people. He said, I am one. And then he, 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 he moves on and he says in verse 7, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Paul is going to come back to this idea of hard-heartedness in a minute. But what he's presenting for us here is that the problem in Israel, the problem today in the church, the problem for all humanity has been that our hearts are prone to being hard. Our hearts are prone to hardness. And we're going to talk about what, what makes a heart hard, what gets a, hard, uh, a heart hard, what, 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 what causes that to happen, what's the diagnosis, what's the, what's the cure for it. But, but before we dive into that, I just ask you to just do a little self-evaluation. Is my heart hard today? Is my heart humble before God or is it proud? Is my heart hungry for God? Or is it full of other things? Is my heart hungry? Is my heart humble? Is, 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 is my salvation, my, my sense of security rooted in God's grace? Or is it rooted in my efforts to perform? Do I know that God has done a work in me that I could never do for myself? Or is my heart hard? Verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? So, so Paul says, okay, so we know the Israelites messed up and they've sinned. We've established all have sinned. Uh, they, they, for the most part, this nation rejected Christ. He says, but have they stumbled so far? Have they fallen and can they not get up? He says, no. By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world... And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness or their full inclusion mean? In other words, he says, I love the way the message translation, Eugene Peterson's translation says this. He says, when they rejected Christ, they walked out the door, but they left the door open for for others to come in. He says, if if Israel's sin in rejecting Jesus, if God used that to bring non-Jewish people into the family, how much more will God use when Israelites, uh, when more Israelites come to faith? 
in Christ. I mean, if their disobedience led to blessing for others, how much more will their faithfulness lead to blessing for others? It's an interesting picture. It's kind of like, and he goes on to say, I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles, he says, because I want to make my fellow Jewish people jealous. He says, I'm out, I'm out preaching to non-Jewish people. I'm out, I'm out um, uh, proclaiming the gospel to outsiders, watching outsiders become insiders with God. And my hope is that the insiders will wake up and say, hey, maybe we walked out on a good thing. Man, maybe Jesus is better than I realized. Um, and, uh, and, and, and he's really retelling the story in a way of the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son story that Jesus told? And we always really make a big deal about the younger brother. I mean, that's really a beautiful part of the story. The younger brother comes home, and, 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 and after he had, had, had wandered and sinned and wasted everything, his father welcomes him. But then the story ends with the elder brother, right? And he's outside, and he's pouting, and what has God ever done for me? I've always kept the rules. I've always done the right thing, and his heart's hard. And the curtain closes on the story with the question in our minds of, what's the prodigal son going to, or what's the older brother going to do? Is he going to come to the party or not? And Israel was in the position of the older brother. And the question for them, the question Jesus is asking his audience that listened, he was talking to the elder brothers, okay? And the question is, are you going to come to the party or not? Is your jealousy for the younger brother going to lead you to come to, 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 come to God or to run away from God? That's the central question. We, we Gentiles, we non-Jewish people, we were the prodigal son, and God brought us in. And Paul's going to really hit, uh, don't be arrogant, he's going to say later, that you were grafted into this family. He said, because you're wild olive trees. In other words, he says, we just kind of wandered in because somebody else left the door open. We're like in Christmas vacation, we're cousin Eddie. Okay? And we just kind of roll up in our, in our uh, RV and it's broke down and we're dumping our sewer out in the street. And, and we're just wild. And we, were, and we have no claim. We have no claim other than God's grace. He says, so don't get proud. This is going to be really important. Don't get proud. Don't become the older brother. And that's what's happened to us. That's what's happened to the American church. As we stop being the prodigal son who just was so glad to be at the party. And we become the older brother who's sin. Who can I keep from joining the party, right? We become the older brother that's become proud and bitter and hard-hearted. Israel's rejection of Jesus opened up the door for others to embrace you. It's kind of like all those girls that rejected me in high school. They just really blessed Sonda, and they didn't even know it. You know what I mean? It's like they, they rejected me, and then they left the door open for Sonda just to slide right in there, you know, and say, hey, here I am. And so, so she really, that's what Paul's saying here, is like the rejection of Israel, of Christ, just left the door open for Cousin Eddie to walk in and get blessed, okay? So do you think you're too far gone? Maybe you're sitting here, and you're like, man, I'm just too far gone. Church thing is not for me. My family's too messed up, whatever. Think about this with me. Like, think about the greatest act of human sin that's ever been committed. That's the crucifixion of Jesus. The one perfect person that's ever lived, the one beautiful and true and just man, we crucified him. That's the most sinful thing, sinful act humans have ever done. And God used that act of sin to throw the door open for you to be saved. That's what God can do with the most sinful thing that's ever happened. What can God do with your sin? So you're not too far gone. The gospel says you're not too far gone. Maybe you think somebody else in your life is too far gone. 
Paul doesn't just wash his hands of his people and say, well, you know, they rejected Jesus and they reject me every time I turn around. Uh, I'm done with them. No, he's, he said in, in Romans 9, I would trade places. I would, I would spend an eternity separated from God if my people could know God for all eternity. My heart's desire is that they may be saved. Is there anybody that you're praying for like that? Is there anybody that your heart is so broken for? We've been saying all through this year, who's your one? Who's that person that you're so broken for that you will pray, you will speak the truth in love, you will go the extra mile, you won't stop until you've shared and you've scattered seed to them. Don't ever give up on anybody. God's able. God was able to save Paul. So, God, so Paul's like, don't, I'm not going to give up on my people. God didn't give up on me. Don't give up on anybody. Who do you pray for like Paul prayed for his people? And he's going to turn back and he's going to come back to this idea of hard-heartedness. And this is where I want us to camp out, guys, because as I think about, as I think about the American church, we've become, in general, a people that's become entitled and we've become hard-hearted. And we become the older brother. Let's turn to verse 17. He already mentioned this idea of hard-heartedness in verse 7. Let's pick up in verse 17. If some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, now you share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant toward the branches. So the idea here is Paul's turning his attention and he's writing to non-Jewish. In other words, he's talking to Gentile members of the Roman church. He's talking to church people. And what happened was that the Roman church had originally been mostly Jewish believers, people that were Jewish that had placed their faith in Christ. But then it became predominantly non-Jewish believers. And Paul's turning his attention to the Gentiles, and he's going to tell them, don't get proud. See, the early church had a race problem. Can you believe that? Can you believe that 2,000 years ago there was a race problem in church? 2,000 years ago, there were people that thought just because there's more of us, we get to call all the shots. Can you believe that that would happen? And Paul grabs the Gentiles by the collar and he says, don't get proud, you're Cousin Eddie. You're here because of grace. This is really relevant today. And Becky was going to share, Becky Acuna was going to share about a new class coming up starting in two weeks called uh, Oneness Embraced by Dr. Tony Evans. It's, uh, we're calling it the gospel and, and, and race. In two weeks, this, Becky's out sick, so she couldn't be here to share today. But we're going to start a class in a couple weeks about what does the gospel mean for our fractured racial relationships? What does the gospel mean for racial harmony and racial reconciliation? This was a problem 2,000 years ago, and it remains to be a problem today. Paul says, don't get proud that any, any kind of prejudice or racism is a manifestation of evil, human sin and pride and arrogance. He says, don't get proud. Verse 17, if some of the branches are broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now you share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it's not you who support the root, but the root supports you. In other words, the gospel didn't just appear out of nowhere. It's rooted in the old covenant. Then you will say, branches were broken off that I may be grafted in. In other words, he's talking to the Gentile Christians who are saying, yeah, God took a chainsaw to these Jewish people so I could come in the family, so I must really be something. If God would take a chainsaw to his own people and cut them out so I could be brought in. See, Paul says we as Gentiles, as non-Jews, we haven't replaced the people of Israel. We've been grafted into their tree. We've been, we've been brought into this one family God's always been at work creating. He says, don't get arrogant. 
He says, that's true, verse 20. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Humanity's biggest problem has always been hard-heartedness. And Israel, as we read the Old Testament, is a warning to us about the danger of hard-heartedness. They're a warning to us. He says, they were cut off because of their unbelief, he said, but you stand, for, stand fast through faith. Do not become proud, but fear. Listen to this, church. Is the American church known by humility? As you turn on you know, pundits on TV, as you turn on the expert evangelicals that come and talk, are we known by humility? Hunger for God? Are we known by pride? Do not become proud, but fear. Why would he say fear? Why would he, why would he tell us that? Because Israel is a warning to us. And if God would judge his people Israel for unbelief, why would he not judge us for unbelief? Verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. If God would take a chainsaw to the, the seed of Abraham because of their deadness and their unbelief, he will take a chainsaw to the spiritual seed of Abraham. Verse 22. He will prune. Note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who've fallen but kindness toward you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, this is a difficult passage, and we're going to do our best in a few minutes here. But I want you to go back to that question of where is your heart? Is your heart characterized by hunger for God? Is it characterized by humility? Or is it characterized by pride? He says, consider the kindness of God. Consider the severity of God. Back in, in, in Romans 2, verse 4 and 5, Paul said, Do you have contempt for the kindness of God, not knowing that it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? Verse 5. But because of your hardened... He's talking to religious people here. Because of your hardened and penitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so in, in, in Romans 2, 4 and 5, he, gives, he speaks of God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It doesn't lead me to stay the same way. And if I hard-heartedly remain uh, unchanged, he says, I'm storing up wrath for myself. He's speaking a word of kindness and a word of severity. And the problem with this kind of message, I love the way Francis Chan puts this in another great study we're doing uh, in a couple weeks called um, Letters to the Church. He says, people, some, some people need a hug and some people need a kick in the rear. And the people that need a hug often feel like they got a kick in the rear. And the people that needed a kick in the rear feel like they got a hug. So search your heart. Which one of those camps you really in? Maybe even ask a friend who knows you. The remnant are saved by grace, and therefore they stay humble. Paul says, consider the kindness and the severity of God. There's this tension in this passage between God's sovereign mercy, between human freedom, between joy, between grief. And now he presents this tension between God's kindness and God's severity. So if you're... A, are moms, is a good mom kind? Anybody? Is a good mom kind? You going to get between a good mom and her kids? Why not? Because she's going she's to hurt you, right? A, a mom knows kindness and a mom knows wrath. And we're evil. If, if we being evil know that wrath is part of love, how much more does a God who loves perfectly he is opposed to anything that's going to hurt you whether you think it's hurting you or not i mean you know 
kids do weird stuff. And mom says, no, don't do that. You know what I'm talking about. Moms are scary. He says, note the kindness and the severity of God. So he's giving encouragement to those that are floundering. Listen, if you're floundering in your faith, if you're just like, I don't know if I even know God. I don't know if I'm saved. Like, I'm struggling with sin and I want to break free. I want to be whole. I want to get out of this. God, help me. Please help me. Then hear the kindness of God. God is leading you to repentance. But if you sit week after week and you say, man, I got this. I'm good. It's all these other people that are messed up. Why won't everybody be like me? Then, then God is severe toward you. This is encouragement to those who are floundering. And listen, this is a warning to those playing games with God. A lot of believers are playing games with God. Hardened hearts. One evidence of hard hearts is, are you constantly offended? Did anybody ever tell you that being offended is not a fruit of the Spirit? It's not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, offended all the time. And yet I have never in my life seen so many professing Christians mad and offended about everything all the time. And some of you are offended that I said that. <laughs> have a friend that's offended all the time. Another friend gave her the book, uh, 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 the bait of Satan or something that's about being offended. She was offended that somebody gave her a book about not getting offended. Come on! <laughs> Habitual sin hardens our heart. Offense, being, being offended hardens our heart. Playing at religion without the Spirit of God hardens our heart. Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, bear with me. Now the works of the flesh, this is what the flesh does. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you as I warned you all before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Self-control against these things, there is no law. I just want you to ask yourself, which of those lists more characterizes my life? If your friends don't know that you're a follower of Christ, bear, hear me. If your friends don't know that you're a follower of Christ, you're not. If your classmates don't know you're a follower of Christ, you're not. If our coworkers, if our family... If the people that we spend time with don't know that something's different, it's not different. Who was Jesus kind toward? Who was he severe toward? Was Jesus severe with a woman at the well? Nope. Woman caught in adultery? Nope. Pharisees? Yep. The people that forsook the commandment of God for the sake of their tradition. It's been a weird season here this past year. I'm about to give you some real talk. Is that okay? It's been a weird season. We've baptized more people than I think the church ever has in the past year. Seen so many people come to, uh, 55, 56 people. People come to faith in Christ, jump into community, disciples made, people step into leadership, and I've never, in, 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 in one span of time, at the same exact time, seeing more people get offended and leave and get their feelings hurt. 
And if there's ever something that like you think we're doing wrong here as a church, or you think I personally am doing wrong, if you would come to me with your Bible open and say you're wrong because God's word says this, I promise you I will fall down and I will kiss your feet. Because not one person has been offended and said, I'm offended because God's word says this. It's my preferences, my expectations are not being met. We've evaluated, we've elevated our preferences above God's word. So, man, if, if we're getting it wrong according to God's word, please tell me, show me. And even if I disagree, I will kiss your feet. I would love for a believer to come and say, this is what God's word says, but we don't look at what God's word says. We look at what do I want and what did grandpa do? And I love your grandpa, but I love your grandchildren. Uzzah, man, back in the Old Testament. Man, Uzzah's walking along. The, 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 the Ark of the Covenant's being brought into Jerusalem. It starts to tip over. He's just being a helper. He reaches out and he grabs it, and he dies. Like, he dies just for trying to help out. Ananias and Sapphira, they come to church. They tell a little white lie. I mean, they didn't give everything. And they die. People at Corinth took the Lord's Supper while they were having bitterness and living in sin, and they died. Well, that seems a little severe, doesn't it? It's not a way to grow a church. Ananias and Sapphira, Uzzah, these others, they grabbed hold of 200 million volts of electricity. We say, why doesn't God move the way he moved in Acts? I want to go to a church where it's like Acts. <laughs> We'd be dead. We would be dead. Because we're playing games with God. And so Paul gives us his warning, not because he's mad at us, because he loves us. He loves the church. Man, when I walked into a little church building 20 years ago and a bunch of senior adults just wrapped their arms around, that wasn't a cutting-edge church. They didn't have all the programs or the bells and whistles. They just loved a sinner, and God used that to transform our life. Have we lost sight? Do we lose sight of what an incredible miracle and mystery it is to get to be part of God's family? You know, the sun is 93 million miles away, and we can't even look directly at it. I used to play games with the sun when I was a kid. I would stare at it as long as I could, and that's why I have 2,800 vision today, okay? I played games, and I got burned. Don't play games. I was like, man, man the, the person who created the sun like, wants to live with you. Angels won't even look at him because he's so holy. And we yawn. Is this thing over yet? He says, behold, note, consider the kindness in this. Man, God is so kind. And if you're struggling today, if your marriage or your health or your finances, your emotions, your, if you're struggling today, man, hear a word that God, man, God loves you. But guys, if you're playing games with God, if you're, if you're playing sin games or if you're playing religious games, don't play around with him. Don't play games with him. This idea of once saved, always saved, like this gets into murky water here. Paul's talking about cutting branches off. And I thought if I, was, if, I thought if I prayed a prayer at camp 50 years ago, I was good to go. If God saves you, you're good. 
Nothing can pluck you out of his hand. Once saved, always saved doesn't mean I made an emotional decision one time and I'm good for all eternity. Has God done a work in your heart? How can you know that? Look at the fruit of the Spirit. Look at the works of the flesh. Is your life growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Am, am I nailing the fruit of the Spirit? You better believe I am not. But I'm growing and I see change and I see God doing things in me that Matt can't do by himself and my desire is to please God and I fail him every day. But guys, we, we, we become indifferent towards God. We become hard towards God. The saved are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The saved bear fruit. The saved persevere. The saved continue in God's kindness. Kellen wrote, uh, read, a, uh, read a parable earlier about people that, you know, they hear the word, they, 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 man, they, they spring up, and then the next thing you look, and they've gone because there's no root. No root, no fruit. Have you known Christian, somebody that made a profession of faith? Man, they're a super Christian for like six months, and then they're gone, and they just leave the whole thing. Isn't that, isn't that disturbing? Isn't that, isn't that, we struggle with that? And I don't know every single situation, but I know, I, I know a lot of times we make an emotional decision. And is, does, that, does that mean the person lost their salvation, or did they, did they just never have it to begin with? Note the kindness and the severity of God. I mean, God is kind. But God is just. Verse 25, Paul talks about a mystery. Verse 25. When it comes, uh, excuse me, I'm not in Romans anymore. 11.25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's, there's going to be a, not all the Gentiles are going to be saved, but a lot are. Some are. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And I believe he means all true Israel will be saved. Not every, he's already said not everybody born with that DNA. He said the liver will become from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. He says... He says, a partial hardening has come about. He says, there's a mystery here. And, and part of the mystery Paul's talking about is this, this idea that people harden their hearts over and over and over again, and eventually God just says, okay, you, this is what happened to Pharaoh, and now he puts Israel in the position of Pharaoh. They've, they've hardened their hearts against God. Now God hands them over to that, and guys, listen, if that, would, if that could happen to the natural branches, that can happen to the church. Like, is your heart hard. Mystery is a word that Paul also uses in the New Testament, especially in Ephesians, and I'm, I'm wrapping up. Mystery refers to this incredible thing called the church, this incredible community that God could bring rich and poor, slave and free, male and female, Jew and Gentile, into one family and unite them by the faith and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. All these ethnically and socially diverse people coming together as one in Christ. It's a sacred mystery to be part of God's people. Have you, have you been reminded of that lately? We live in such an entitled time and we evaluate, we, we judge everything. I don't know. I don't really know if I got a lot out of that service. I mean, I don't know. Just didn't do it for me today. You're gross. Francis Chan says, there's no greater honor on earth than to be part of God's church. When was the last time you were awestruck at the fact that you were part of Christ's body? Have you ever marveled at this privilege? Yeah, but I don't really like the music, though. I don't know about two services. 
Life groups, that's really not my thing. Come on. Imagine this scenario with me. Imagine this bizarre scenario. Imagine there's a group of church leaders and they're gathered in a little room and they're having this conversation. Like, guys, people are busy. This is America. People are really important. And we're only going to, I mean, the most committed believers, they're going to gather for maybe an hour on a week that they don't have something better to do. And so we got to fit everything into that hour, guys. We got to get it all in there. We got to have hard hitting testimony. We got to have excellent music. Man, the sermon better knock it out of the park every week. Better leave some time for communion. I mean, people are only giving us 60 minutes out of their busy schedules. I mean, that's, I mean this isn't baseball. Let's, keep, let's be serious. How much can we really ask? Let's keep our priorities straight. It's just church, it's just God. you see what's wrong with that picture? We've lost a sense of... I'm not talking about lost people, guys. I'm talking about saved people that may be lost people, okay? Have we lost... This is the king of the universe that wants to do life with you. He wants to make you part of his people. He wants to make you part of his temple. And we're over here saying, what's the least I can get by with? Paul, as he imagines just the incredible knowledge and wisdom of God, he just breaks out in worship. He says, verse 33, Oh, the riches the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? As Paul just breaks out into worship, because God is worth it, Jesus is worth it. Being part of the church is worth it. God's grace preserves a, a remnant people, a hungry people, a humble people. I hope that's you. I, that's the people I want to be part of. The, don't go into hysterics of, am I saved, am I not saved? But look at your fruit, guys. What fruit characterizes your life? 